Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Financial accounting is so iffy at two housing and urban development programs, the inspector general issued an alert. HUD can't figure out improper payments in these programs, hasn't been able to for years, and won't be able to for years more. For details, we turn to Deputy IG Stephen Begg. Mr. Begg, good to have you back. Thanks for having me on the show again, Tom. Pleasure to be back. So what did you find in which programs that caused you to issue a management alert? That's more than just issuing an IG report or audit. That's right. The management alert is essentially a short report that our inspector general uses to raise issues of significant deficiencies or risks immediately to HUD secretary or deputy secretary. And the issue raised here is simply that HUD needs to do more to protect taxpayer funds from being misspent in its two largest programs. The two programs at issue are rental assistance programs, and the law that's out there requires federal agencies, as you know, Tom, to examine their programs that are susceptible to making improper payments and then take action to mitigate that risk so that taxpayer funds aren't misspent. Uh, Those improper payments can come in the form of over or underpayments, payments made to the wrong people or businesses, duplicate payments, and in the worst cases, payments made in fraud schemes that go people who don't deserve them. Now, these are rental assistance program, and what was the other one? It's two rental assistance programs. So these are the largest programs that HUD uses to assist millions of households across the country in making their monthly rent payments. They come in two variations. One, where HUD works with housing authorities or contractors to provide households with vouchers where they have the option to work with any landlord of their choosing in finding housing. And the other, where HUD works directly with landlords to provide assistance to entire buildings or projects. So these are payments both to individuals in some cases or to the housing operators or the landlords in other cases? The payments end up going through participants, so housing authorities and contractors directly to the landlords, which is part of the challenge in making sure that they're proper. There are many different stages of them. And so tracking the payments and verifying that they're accurate down to the ground level is really the challenge. Right. These are not quite like programs, say, at Labor Department, where the funds go in bulk, so to speak, to the states, and then the states administer the programs. These are between HUD and local housing authorities and landlords? Yeah, so there are multiple tiers. Payments are made from HUD to housing authorities or to contract administrators, and then those entities would then make payments down to landlords. So testing the accuracy and appropriateness of those payments at both levels has been the challenge for HUD for many years. Yeah, to trace the money from the Treasury down to who owns the house, I guess, can be pretty complicated. Give us the extent of what you found in terms of dollars and possible improper payments. Sure. So in terms of size, in 2016, the funds that went through these two payments totaled more than $30 billion. In 2023, that amount has grown to more than $45 billion. And You know, our office and the Government Accountability Office have been identifying these programs as susceptible to improper payments for many years. Back in 2000, the number of estimated improper payments in the programs uh, by HUD's account was $3.2 billion. GAO labeled the program as high risk in 2001 in light of finding that there were significant opportunities for HUD to reduce overpayments in the program. And then in 2016, the last time HUD was able to estimate how many improper payments happened in these programs. They estimated that $1.7 billion potentially been misspent or was unable to be verified. 
We've been stressing for several years in our annual report on HUD's top management challenges that it really needs to address improper payments in these two huge rental assistance programs, which account for roughly two-thirds of all expenditures across HUD. We're speaking with Stephen Begg. He's Deputy Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. And your report said that they have not, as you just described, haven't been able to really know their improper payment levels, which is a way of not really being able to account for the program at all in some sense since 2016, but that they don't feel that they could do so until 2027. What is that mechanism? That is in large part the reason that our office issued this management alert. You know, we, we complete an annual audit of HUD's compliance with the law that requires them to test and estimate improper payments in their programs. And this year, we learned that for the first time that HUD was not believing they would complete those testing exercises until 2027. We did not feel that we should wait to alert HUD leadership of that risk until our annual report came out. And so in our management alert, we identified two areas where we believe HUD leadership needs to intervene. And the first is a lack of planning and coordination across HUD program offices. There are multiple offices that have equities here. There are different programs that administer the two rental assistance programs we talked about, but HUD's finance offices and its IT offices also have a role to play in collecting the information that's necessary for HUD to test and then estimate the potential improper payments in the programs, which is really just the first step in this process, because once you estimate what program risks you have for improper payments, then HUD's required to develop action plans to mitigate and address those. So here, without being able to complete the exercise of gathering the information and testing it, HUD can't then take action to address it. Right. So in some sense, they have to get a lot of information, a lot of data from all of the tiers along the line there, somehow correlate that if that's even possible. And then HUD's responsibility, ultimately, though, to know whether the payments were all proper. So there's sort of a combination of trust and data and verifying here. It sounds like, frankly, a hairball from the from HUD standpoint to get on top of this. Because there are multiple program offices involved, you know, we felt like it was appropriate to raise it to HUD leadership to intervene, to bring them together. But in addition to the moving parts, the reason we feel like HUD has been unable to complete that first step in estimating is due in large part because their approach is flawed. They haven't developed a sound methodology for collecting all of that information at the various tiers that you mentioned in a way that they can complete the testing under the timelines required by the law. Right. Could it be, too, that the process that they have developed over the decades of rendering housing assistance might be so convoluted that nobody could trace the money and that they should maybe rethink the whole program from the ground up in terms of where the money goes when it leaves HUD or you know leaves the Treasury? You know, our position has been that HUD has the ability to act in a way across its offices to gather and estimate how the programs can be better protected so that the rental assistance funding that comes from taxpayers can be maximized to support the Americans that need it. Our alert raises that recommendation to the HUD's deputy secretary to bring the offices together to really reset what the plan is for getting to that point. But you do feel it's possible to get a handle on the system as it's designed now if they put the effort toward it? We do. Absolutely. And what kind of reaction did you get from HUD leadership when you issued this alert? The deputy secretary's response agreed with our recommendation, which we were pleased with, and agreed with the need that a, a detailed plan is necessary to expedite this exercise. 
the response indicated that the deputy secretary will provide that plan within 30 days and she's working across HUD's program office leadership to get the job done. We are encouraged by that and we look forward to working with HUD and supporting that effort. Right. So in other words, this program did get off the high risk list somewhere along the line. So we know what's possible. It did. Our concern, though, is that for the past seven years, and if by HUD's estimation, three more, so potentially 10 years, there will be a gap in overseeing it in terms of improper payments and then taking actions to mitigate them. So in our estimation, there's there's a pretty big gap in what we know about the potential for uh, high risk. Yeah. And what happened in 17, 18, 19, we probably will never know. That's right. That's right. Steve Begg is Deputy Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand and rent-free. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.